My name is Tony Hunt, and I'm pastor here at LAFC, and I want to welcome you if you are a a guest here today, and uh, hopefully you'll take advantage of the opportunity to let us know you are here. We have a gift for you at the Welcome Center. Uh, Additionally, uh, we uh, also would love to share more with you. We have in the fall, we'll have a thing called Starting Point uh, that will let you know the on-ramp into this church and finding out how you can get connected here. Also, if you're new, you probably heard a term earlier said by Ann that you're still probably scratching your head over, what in the world is oikos? Uh, Especially since you don't say oikos, the yogurt, uh, what is this all about? And that is literally the kone or ancient Greek term that was used in the time of the life of Christ to describe your relational world. Those you do life with, those that you have relationship with, have influence with. And, uh, and so we just borrowed the Jesus term, if you will, for how to have relationships. So when we say invite your oikos, it's your friends, your family, those you have connections with. And so just wanted to make sure you understand that what we mean when we say those, those kind of things. So having said that, we're in the midst of a series uh, called Anchored. And what we mean by that is that in life, there are many things that begin to cause us to be under duress, under stress, under uh, intensity, and, and feeling sometimes even depression, and we feel like we're being driven by storms constantly, and we don't feel like we have footing in the midst of it. And, and so what we're looking at is addressing the issues that cause anxiety in life and, and finding an anchor by which we are not adrift and can find wholeness, relational connection to God in the midst of those difficult situations. And we're beginning with relationships. And, uh, and so first week, which was the first Sunday in May, we looked at how God has actually designed you and I to be relational. Even if you're introverted, you are designed to have relationship. You're not meant to be isolated. But when you're in those relationships, often things can happen that can hinder the wholeness. And so we were looking at how that God not only created us to be relational, but he created us that through relationship, we find our greatest fulfillment, we find our wholeness, our unity, and therefore our life is at its optimal form when we have relational unity and wholeness with others and with God. But even the best of relationships even the best of them, can come under stress and conflict. And so the challenge is, is how do you manage relationships in a way that keeps them healthy, even when conflict comes? You see the picture of our pastoral team up there. Uh, We are indeed smiling after spending two days together by that point. And, uh, and, And yes, we are a good team. We get along well. We work hard together. We pray together. We discuss things together. And yes, conflicts can happen. And so the question becomes like, how do we keep the team unity? How do we keep the relationships whole? Even when conflict arises, how do we manage it in a way that brings glory to God? And so last week we looked at conflict management and how that in those situations with relational situations where conflict can arise, it really comes down to, are you willing to set aside your glory for God's glory. Can you pursue conflict management in that situation, not about being right and having the attention towards yourself, but truly trying to navigate it in a way that brings glory to God? And, and that can be a very big challenge depending on the level of conflict. 
But in this series, we're going to keep going deeper. So relational wholeness is God's design. Your optimal uh, experience in life and fulfillment is found in relational wholeness between mankind and between you and God. When that gets threatened by conflicts, your management of that can determine as to whether or not that wholeness is maintained. But what if that relational wholeness actually becomes broken? So we're going to look at when relationships become broken, not when there's conflict that's being managed, because that can happen in a very good relationship. We're going to deal with when relationships become broken today. And so we're going to turn in our Bibles today to Matthew chapter 5 and, and hear from Jesus what, how his advice to dealing with issues of relational brokenness. If you do not have a Bible with you today or a Bible app, uh, our ushers would be glad to provide you a Bible. Just kind of put your hand up and they'll hand you one. If you do not own a Bible, please take this Bible as a gift from us. Uh, we would love for you to have one in your possession. So if relationships become broken, the optimal word then in the pursuit of doing what God would have us to do would be the word reconciliation. And sometimes it's much easier to pronounce the word reconciliation than it is to actually practice reconciliation, especially when we're talking about broken relationships. So in the meaning, reconciliation, it, it basically says this by Webster's Dictionary, which I, I'm going to guess is becoming a little bit more antiquated, that term. D okay, teenagers are often sitting to my left. Is Webster's Dictionary even a term in your vocabulary? Okay, good. So it's, it's still a norm. Do they have apps called Webster's Dictionary app? Okay, there is. Good. I would, when you use terms that I grew up with, you're not always sure it's still relevant. So having said that, Webster says this about the simplicity of the definition. It's to restore a friendship or to restore harmony. Okay, so restore a friendship or to restore harmony. So sometimes it's a relational thing between two people, and other times it can be a broken relationship that is a team context or a context where there's many people involved. And so harmony is often a term we would describe to that. But sometimes it's not even a friendship that becomes broken. It's just an acquaintance or a working relationship. And so harmony, again, becomes a proper term. The need to reconcile means that there is more than just a conflict that needs managed, but it means more fully that it is a broken situation that needs repaired. So this isn't about management, it's about repairing. So as we go forward, understand we're talking about brokenness where it is a, requires reparation, not just management. The end game for reconciliation is then restoration of a relationship and or harmony to a particular situation. However, in the journey towards reconciliation, there are usually adversaries to it. And there's one significant one that tends to rise from within. That adversary is anger. Anger can be the greatest adversary to reconciliation because it be provides a great deterrent because you choose in some cases to hold on to your anger and therefore you choose 
to continue the relational brokenness. I will say by the end of this time, as we look at God's word, you will know without a doubt that God would say it's intolerable to him to choose relational brokenness as the outcome. Therefore, the choice of God that he would want us all to aspire to is relational restoration or reconciliation. So let's begin by looking at a text found in Matthew 5. We're going to begin in verse 21. And I want to give a little context to this. This is part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. It's his lengthiest sermon that is recorded in Scripture. And his pattern through much of this sermon is to state a law found in the Ten Commandments, but then to go further with it. Because in his, the society he's speaking to, there was no argument as to what was the law. And the society he's speaking to, primarily Hebrew and Jewish culture, they understood the Ten Commandments to be the writing, overarching moral code that they were to abide by. And so they would abide by the letter of the law, but they often would miss the spirit of the law. So Jesus addresses that within the Sermon on the Mount, and he does so in the text we're dealing with today. So in verse 21, we begin with this. You heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. No argument, right? Makes sense. Somebody kills someone, there's judgment. But, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Let me stop there, and I will continue in that text in a moment. So in this context, you see Jesus saying, okay, the letter of the law says you shall not murder. And as a result of murder, the automatic judgment is this. You lose your life. It's capital punishment. If you kill someone, the death penalty is your judgment. Nobody would argue the case for it. That was the, had been in and written writing for generations. And therefore, most people, the vast majority, 99% of them, had never committed sin according to that text and that command. So they thought. Because in this text, he says, okay, murder equals judgment. But then he goes on to say, and anger equals judgment. Same phraseology, same pattern, the same emphasis that was stated. If you commit murder, you receive judgment. If you allow anger to reside within you, you receive judgment. Same patterns. No degrees of separation, no valuification. It's the same. The same pattern. Murder, judgment. Anger, judgment. Now imagine you're a good Jewish person hearing Jesus speak this and you're thinking, okay, yes, I've never committed murder, there's judgment, but then he goes to say, but anger will also lead to that same judgment. 
you're thinking, okay, Jesus, finish your thought, right? Give me an out. Give me a line here. I need a line because I've certainly been angry before, and I might even be angry right now. So give me a line. Jesus doesn't give a line. In fact, he goes on to, to say this term. You're probably thinking, what's raka? Well, raka was a term that was referring to, I despise you. And so if somebody was to cut off a relationship, they would say, raka, and walk away. I despise you. I separate from you. I'm done. Jesus says that if you do that, you're under judgment. And then he says another statement. He says, and the person that says, you fool, to another is also in danger of judgment. Why? Because when you say, I despise you, you are cutting off and you're choosing relational brokenness. And when you say, you fool, you're choosing yourself as the judge. You've placed yourself in God's position in regards to another, and you set yourself higher than the one you're angry at. You are the fool, I'm not. And Jesus is not pulling punches here when he calls these things out because these were a common thing, that if somebody was significantly angry to another and they just wanted to end it, they'd say, raka, and walk away. They're done. It's permanently broken. Or, again, he starts at the high point of obvious, you've broken the relationship, and he goes down to another le level where it's like, you're a fool. Which they're not saying that I'm breaking off relationship with you, but now they're setting up themselves up as judge. So you have this text that, that now the people are sitting there, they're squirming because they've not been allowed any wiggle room to hold on to anger. And they're saying, being told it's the same judgment as to one who would actually commit murder. Now, Jesus is painting a picture that this is all about relationships. Because when you see that, that, that with anger, it's in regards to another individual. Or, or, or in a case of, you know, you're calling them fool or you're trying to separate. It's all relational. When you consider murder that's done in our culture and country, it usually can be tied back to some kind of relational brokenness. Yes, there are mass murders, and we've, and we've read about them. And often those victims had no relationship with the one that was the, the one creating the mass murder, the one behind the gun. There often was no connection. But when you study the life behind those who have performed that mass murder, there is usually, in fact, in every case I've studied, relational brokenness. And in some cases, when there are mass shootings, the victims were relationally connected and there was brokenness between them and the shooter. You see, murder can be tied back to relational brokenness. But it is also true that it didn't start at the height and level as to when the shooter actually pulls the trigger. It usually started with something small. Something small that became a wedge between them and another. And it allowed their anger to grow up to when they would do something that it was seemed unfathomable to them maybe 
early on, but now is a reality in their life. So in this text, Jesus is saying at the root of murder is a relational brokenness called anger. He goes on to speak to it directly in verse 23 when he says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and become reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. In this text, Jesus acknowledges that there are times when anger will actually become a hindrance in your own worship. In fact, he's beginning to plant a picture that I'll make a stronger case for here in a moment, that if you have relational brokenness between your fellow mankind, that will correlate directly to relational brokenness between you and God. So in this text, he says, in your anger... Because it is so insidious to your soul, first go and reconcile, then worship. First go and reconcile, then worship. So in other words, your ability to worship is hindered if you're choosing to maintain a broken relationship. Now, you got to hear my words all the way through. If you're choosing to maintain a, relationally, a relational broken situation, you are now hindering worship between you and God. So Jesus says, first then reconcile, then come worship. In fact, he goes on and gives another context. So sometimes if you know that there's something against you that, that, that they have, that you go and figure it out, you reconcile. Then, so he says, first do that. But in verse 25, he says this, when you know you're guilty, Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, not every context is the same, but Jesus is giving a principle here. That if there's a relational broken situation, either you're, you've offended and you don't know how, or that you have done something and, and, and you're being taken to court. Jesus says, settle it quickly. First do that before you worship because it's going to hinder your worship. You see, reconciling with a fellow human being when you've learned how to go on a journey of reconciliation and trying to make something right between you and another, you are beginning to understand the relationship between you and God. You see, there is a direct correlation relationally with the health of your human relationships and the health of your relationship with God. If your relationships with your fellow mankind stink, I guarantee you, your relationship with God stinks as well. If you are not willing to have and manage your relationships in a manner that is honoring to God with, with those that are around you that you can actually engage more with your senses, then how in the world, if you can't manage that and, and deal with that, manage a relationship between you and God, a God you can't see? 
John speaks to this in 1 John chapter 4. It'll be up on the screen. He says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is what? A liar. Like, you can't say, I love God, but meanwhile holds grudges and anger and chooses relational brokenness. You can't say, I love God, and yet not love a brother and sister. He calls it out as a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister, even if it's difficult. So Jesus is speaking that your worship is secondary to relational wholeness. Why? Because if you're not relationally whole with those you can see, then you're not going to be relationally whole with God. So therefore, settle it quickly. Deal with it, lest your relationship with God becomes completely hindered. Pretty clear, isn't it? So why is it then in our lives, we choose relational brokenness. Because often we do. When somebody makes us angry, they've hurt us, they've hindered us, why is it that we choose to just say raka? We separate. Or why is it that we just choose, you're a fool, I judge you, I'm better than you. Why is it we do that? Hmm. We kind of treat anger sometimes as that thing that's in our knuckles, that it's our right to hold on to it. But I did want to take a sincere, transparent pursuit of trying to answer the question, why do we actually allow anger to fester and stay within us? Why do we continue to tolerate broken relationships? Well, the first thing that I, I believe as to why we typically do is because we tend to justify our anger because it's just a small degree of anger. In other words, we create degrees of it. And as long as we don't hit the higher degrees of anger, then we're justified to keep holding on to our anger as a little child. It's mine to hold on to. Case in point, this idea of justifying degrees of anger. My anger, quote-unquote, leads me to only ignore the person. I don't actually do anything malicious to them. I just ignore. See, that's a small degree of anger. That, that's tolerable. I have the right that if they've made me angry to just ignore them. There's no harm in that, is there? Have you ever gone somewhere when you know there's anger involved and they have anger towards you? You go to say hi to them and it's in a public context and they give you the cold shoulder and even turn as if you didn't even say anything at all. Have you been on the receiving end of that? Do you think that there was something actually inflicting and wounding in that moment? Yeah. So when we try to say in our in our 
justification that it's okay to hold on to anger. It's like, well, that's not hurting anybody. I just ignored them. That is a lie. Ignoring does hurt. And it is malicious just as much as you would to say something directly to them. Secondly, another idea of why we tend to justify anger by degrees is that my anger only led me to set them up for what they deserve. I mean, they deserve being judged for this. They did something very wrong. So my actions, while I'm not being vindictive, I'm choosing ways that they can just fall prey to their own issues. This is often a case where when you know that somebody is committing error after error, that you just let them fall into their own trap instead of trying to reconcile that might actually help them avoid from self-destruction. So it's basically, I'm just washing my hands of them. Let them fall to themselves because they'll get what they deserve eventually. Again, degrees of anger and justification. Again, another one might be, well, I'm allowed to slander them because it's truth. It's truth. For instance, have a lot of friendships in this community. Some go to this church, some do not. Some are Christians, some are not. And in those relationships, especially in small town, conversations start to come that shares the dirt on other people in the community. What's interesting is sometimes these friends that are not from my church will be speaking of somebody in our church and they don't know that they're in our church. That's always interesting. But in those conversations, often when they come, they come so fast that that you don't even have the opportunity to redirect because it's going into gossip. And the other challenging thing in that context, in that situation, is that I am the pastor in the room. And it's very easy that if I say something to correct, that it comes off as being holier than thou or being self-righteous. And because I'm aware that people might receive it that way if I actually correct something, I'm actually very hesitant to say anything at all. So when something goes so far in the gossip train and the slander train that I, I actually speak up and say, can we change the subject? I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable with this. You know it's gone really far. And this is pretty much the comment when I've been forced to say that, when it's gone so far down the gossip line, the comment I usually get in return is what I just said. Well, it is the truth. As if that justifies it all. It's the truth. So, even though it's the truth, it's okay to talk about it in a way that you know lowers that person's standing in the eyes of others. And besides that, does any of us, do any of us really know the truth in regards to an individual and their motives? What's going on inside? Again, we create degrees of anger so we can justify it. Well, it's the truth, or they're going to get what they deserve, or I'm only ignoring them, not doing anything else. Sometimes we motivate ourselves to hold on to our anger by removing ourselves from them 
The motive inside is, well, if I stop calling them and I stop engaging them, then they'll start realizing just how important I am to their life. Sounds kind of prideful, but let's face it, it happens. Happens inside of us. If we got really honest, why we stop calling, why we stop engaging is because we want them to realize just how important we are. So we hold on to our hurt, our anger, and the brokenness. Sometimes we just simply hold on to anger because we are so animate that we are right. We embrace the brokenness between us and another individual because we know we are right. Hmm. Other times, we hold on to our anger because we're afraid of the process of reconciliation. You see, usually in the process of reconciliation, it requires going face-to-face with somebody that said something very hurtful. You are afraid that you might not say the right things. You're afraid they're going to say more things that you don't want to hear. And so you cop out on it because it's like you just don't have the courage to go forward. So you choose, again, to hold on to your anger because it's too fearful otherwise. Then we look at the idea that we hold on to anger because we assume it really doesn't affect us. It really doesn't affect us. I I can hold on to this anger with this individual. I can choose relational brokenness. It's okay. It's not going to affect me. The problem is, is anger is like a cancer. It works sight unseen. It starts affecting you in ways you don't know. And then once you start seeing the evidence of it externally, it is encompassing the fullness of your character. And your character starts shifting. When we become unsettled with other relationships... It's often affected because you have a relational brokenness with somebody else. And it begins to affect how you relate to others. You start being short. You start being snarky. You start having this very cold response to any time that person speaks to you. Again, because you think initially it won't hurt you. It won't affect you. So you hold on to it. And then unfortunately, what I often see when it goes to its fullest fruition within a person, when anger has then completely consumed them, the end result is they become disillusioned with life altogether. And ultimately, they become disillusioned with the truth of God. Disillusionment is not a great place to be because you can't look at relationships and people without being hopeless, distraught, and lacking the energy to do any kind of making things right. You're so hurt, you're so broken, you feel lost. And when you feel that and you don't even know which step to take next, then you begin to apply that feeling towards God. 
I don't even know how to approach God. I'm not even sure God is God. I'm not even sure if I'm just talking to the air and he doesn't even exist at all. And if I do believe there's a God, I'm beginning to think just like the people around me. They can't see how I'm actually hurting. They can't feel what I'm feeling and therefore they can't understand who I am and what I've experienced. And we begin to ascribe those same things to God. God doesn't know how I'm feeling. God doesn't know how to fix it. God doesn't know what I've seen and experienced. And God doesn't have any idea how I'm actually going to live tomorrow. You see, anger gets you there. When I look at all these things, it's very easy to understand why anger is the greatest deterrent to reconciliation. We start off by justifying it, holding on to it, assuming it's just a low degree of it, so therefore we have the right to hold on to it. Forgetting the fact, it doesn't just stay there, it grows. So when Jesus speaks to the very evidential side of this, like, you think it's just an issue if you kill somebody. But what if you actually kill somebody with words? What if you actually kill somebody with your actions? You don't know the effect it might have for them going forward. And you probably are underestimating the impact it has upon you. I found that just like what is stated here, that in my life, it's easy to hold back anger and to hide it to where people can't see it. But I start feeling that I know that there's something going on when I find myself being relationally short with others. That's the first evidence that maybe I need to go do something about a reconciliation situation. You see, God's gifted me with the ability of using words. And that same gift that can be used to build somebody up can be used to tear somebody down. And I have found that when I'm not in a good place, my words go from being constructive in lives of people to being destructive. It's the first sign there's something not right. There's a brokenness going on. Jesus gives us some direction with this. He doesn't just say, you're going to get judged if you continue to speak and despise and separate. You're going to be judged if you use your words to throw another down. No, he doesn't just say that and, and, and then let it go and then let you be under judgment. No, Jesus gave us direction. He understands that if this is broken here between us and others, he understands it will impact the relationship we have with him. So therefore, it's, it's so vital that if there is relational brokenness, he says, don't delay. Don't delay making things right. That's the first step in the journey to rec rec reconciliation is, is making sure we don't delay. We can't keep minimizing and saying it is just a small thing. We must make effort right away. Secondly, the journey to reconciliation is not just delaying. We have to despise the right things. In this text, Jesus is clearly saying, despise the anger 
and the separation, not the person. We're not given permission. We're not given permission to, uh, uh, to remain in anger with someone rather, or to despise them, but we're rather told we need to despise the anger that resides in us, not the person we're angry at. So if we're despising the right things, then, then we'll be able to practice the next thing that I believe is in this text, and that is being courageous. Being courageous. You see, anger tells us the other person doesn't have the capacity to reconcile. Because see, this entire time we've been talking about this text, many here in this room are immediately applying to a relationship and saying, but Tony, you don't know this person. You don't know my ex-husband. You don't know my best friend that used to be my best friend. You don't know my mom. You don't know my dad. And you don't know my sister or my brother. You don't know this person at work that has never had a relationship with me. It's going to take courage. It's going to take courage to engage somebody that you have a broken relationship with. Now, in this case, it is also true that building a bridge of reconciliation starts from two shorelines. It does. And we can only do what we can do. And if you notice in this text, Jesus is addressing those who are listening. There are many who don't listen. So Jesus is addressing those who are listening. And he never addresses the fact that there's another side that may not respond. You get a little bit of that in verse 25 and on, saying that while you're walking to the courthouse with this person who's taking you to court, talk to them. Perhaps you can win it over. So here's the thing. We can only do what God has called us to do. We can't build the whole bridge. But Jesus has charged us to build from our shoreline. To build the bridge from our shoreline so that when there is reciprocation, reconciliation can actually happen. So that leads to the last point, which is, let in God's hands your adversary's response. You can't control the response. So you have to let it in God's hands. As God is working on you and convicting you, perhaps at the same time, God is doing a work in the other person's life. On a different timeline, and not in the same way, but nonetheless, we have to trust that God is doing his work on the other side. You see, in order for us to experience wholeness between us and God, we need to have done all we can to make sure we've not burned a bridge in our relationships with others. We can't control the other side, but we can do this. And you know, I think God gets it. How, Jesus Christ died for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Has the entire world responded back to God's love? No. But did God provide the bridge from his shoreline? Yes, he did. 
Yes, he did. And many people will not walk across the bridge he provides. Doesn't mean he didn't provide it. But he did so out of glory to God so that it did not hinder his relationship with his father. And you and I have the same charge. We've been reconciled back to God by the bridge through Jesus Christ. If you've given your life to Jesus, you've been reconciled. You walked across the bridge that Jesus built. So it's our job to model that. Even when the other side is not worthy of it. Even if the other side seems like they would never respond the way we would want. We still build the bridge. And let God handle the other individual. Let's pray. Jesus, I know from firsthand there are people that I have tried very much to reconcile with only to have them rebuff it. And there's a part of me that still wishes wholeness. But I stand in hope that in those situations, God, that you will at some point allow the other shoreline to begin to build. But in the meantime, I want to honor you by valuing the relationship even with an adversary so that I can give glory to you and understand what it means to truly love without conditions. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and where anger resides, would you release it in our souls? Lord, if we're not aware of our anger and yet it's beginning to eat at us like cancer, would you then make it abundantly clear the anger we've allowed to manifest in our souls? So do a work now in this time, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us then the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God and God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the holiness we just spoke of towards God becomes our holiness because in Christ we have been reconciled to God. And he says, for those of us who have experienced that relationship with God through Jesus, now become ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation. So some of you here currently are not maybe dealing with any kind of broken relationship, but you have a friend who is dealing with a broken relationship with somebody else. You can be a minister of reconciliation. You can help guide them. You can help pray for them. You can spur them on to be courageous towards reconciliation. Yes, it's not easy. 
Often when I get involved with reconciliation, where I'm helping maybe a husband and wife uh, reconcile together, often I get bloodied in the middle of it all. But you know what? You have to be willing to go into that sometimes. Is that not what Christ did on our behalf? He got bloodied so that you and I could be reconciled to the Father God. And now we get to be messengers of that. And some of you here are in the throes of a broken relationship. Be courageous. Allow God to think anew of what he could possibly do that you've long given up. Be faithful to what he wants to do in you. And maybe build a bridge anew from your shoreline. There will be people that will be glad to pray with you uh, underneath the cross. You saw the picture of our staff. Many of them are in the room right now. Feel free to talk because we don't want you walking out being hindered in your relationship with God or with others. We'd be blessed to be come alongside you to pray. Having said that, may God give you courage and hope and use you to be a reconciler between others, but also between them and God. Amen. You are dismissed.